This morning there will be an opportunity towards the end of the service for healing prayer. It's been very encouraging uh, of late to see numerous people healed of various different conditions from pains and allergies and all sorts. I'm still getting emails from things that people were prayed with months ago. I didn't know anything about it and they're completely healed. Um, We do believe that God is able to answer prayer. We believe that God is a God who answers prayer. It's not as kind of weird and strange. It's just that God hears us when we pray. That's one of the most wonderful things about Him. But before we pray uh, for one another, uh, we're going to look at uh, the Bible together. And partly because, am I a bit loud? I'm, I'm going to get louder probably. So there's a, a warning uh, there for the sound guys. But uh, getting into heaven isn't an old-fashioned issue. I think we sometimes feel that the idea of getting to heaven, it's kind of a, a past issue. It's not. I heard of a guy um, just recently. He arrives, he, he dies, he arrives at the gates of heaven. And to his astonishment and surprise, it's just like in all the jokes that he's heard. Because there's Peter standing there with a clipboard and asking, you know, preliminary entrance questions for those candidates who'd like to get into heaven. And so this guy approaches Peter and uh, he's a little bit nervous. And Peter said to him, well, um, do you regularly, did you regularly go to church? And the chap says, well, uh, I, I, I can't, well, regularly, yeah, I suppose every Christmas, I, that's regular. Every Christmas I went to church, I was fairly regular in that sense. Peter taps his clipboard and that's not very good. Well, what about giving your possessions to the poor? How were you at giving your possessions to the poor? And the man says, yeah, I believe in that. That's a good thing. I, uh, I do. I, yes, I remember that thing with the broken handle. I, I remember I gave, I gave that away. Peter taps his clipboard. Ooh, it's not very good. It's not very good. What about regular giving to charity? The guy thinks to himself, regular giving. Uh, well, there was that concert and there was that big uh, fundraising thing. But in terms of direct debits or stop orders, I, I can't say I can really. Peter taps his clipboard again. He says, listen, I'm trying to help you. Just give me something here. Think of something. What about some good deeds that you've done? The man, you know what it's like. You're under pressure, begins to sweat, can't really think of anything. And then suddenly he says, oh, yes, yes, yes. I helped this, this older lady. I came out of Tesco's and uh, as I got outside, there was, there was this group of hell's angels. And big guys, leather jackets, a couple of them with big bushy beards and they'd taken this old lady's purse and they were throwing it from one to another. She was very distressed. It was a terrible thing and I was outraged. Peter said, that's good. You're outraged. said, yes, I threw my shopping down. Peter said, you threw your shopping down. I threw my shopping down. And I went and I, I, I went up to the ringleader, the, the biggest guy with the, the, the big beard and I took the purse out of his hand and I gave it back to the old lady. Peter said, very good, very good. And he's writing it down. The guy said, and then I went back to the, the ringleader and I put my finger in his face and I said, you, you are a pathetic coward. Peter said, very good, very good. When, when did this happen? And the guy said, that was about five minutes ago. <laughs> I'm just waiting for the second wave of laughs as, as the rest get it. 
You're a very intelligent congregation. There can even sometimes be a third wave of laughter after that one. But today we're going to look at a statement uh, by Jesus that's going to help us in terms of actually making a real connection uh, with God and maybe coming to him and humbling ourselves and saying, God, I, I, I need you in my life, actually. I need you in my life. And uh, maybe you're going to be able to relate to this. I'm not used to this uh, headpiece thing that you've got here. Let me just, no, it's fine. I'll just, if, I'm trying to tuck it in the back, tuck it in the back. I'm going to, oh, no, that's too tight. <laughs> okay. Maybe you can identify with one of these three statements. You, you don't believe in God. Perhaps you're here today and you're saying, well, I don't really believe in God. But I've come along, friends invited me, I'm interested in knowing, you know, what did Jesus really accomplish? But, but you can't say you're a, you're a, a believer, you're not, you're not a Christian in that sense of the word. Well, secondly, you may be in a slightly different place. Maybe you're saying, well, no, I'm not kind of an atheist, I do believe in God. Uh, you know, I believe that he's there, but I'm not sure that my sins have been forgiven. I don't think I kind of stand up and say, my sins are all forgiven. You can't say that you've got a genuine father-child relationship with God. You don't really have a personal relationship with God. And you couldn't say, you wouldn't say that you know for sure that if you were to die today, you'd go to heaven. You'd hope perhaps, but you, couldn't, you wouldn't feel comfortable in saying that. Well, I think this message again is going to be relevant to you, that today you can make sure, and I'd encourage you to respond to the, the, the prompting of God, the drawing compassion of God. Thirdly, you may say, well, I'm, I'm, not, even, I'm not at the first position, I'm, I'm not even there, I'm actually in a, a different position. I mean, I, I, do, I believe that, that God's there, and I know that I need Him. But the question is, you know, I mean, how can I really make this work? How is it actually going to happen for me? You know, I'm on the stairs right now, and I'm, I'm wanting to pray, and I'm wanting to, I want God. How do I come to know God? And I believe that this message is going to help you. Because the purpose of this message this morning is to call you to a decision. A decision to believe in Jesus Christ. I believe it's that God has brought you to this moment. He knows exactly what he's doing. You're here for a purpose and for a reason. Today is a special day for you because the God who made you and who loves you and who cares about you is actually reaching towards you and he's saying to you, come, follow me. It's now. It's today. And that's a huge privilege that is, that is, I'll come to that, but it's a great privilege. So if you have a Bible, you might like to open it at Luke and chapter 4. The words should appear on the screen. It should already be up there, actually. Have we got that PowerPoint? Let's have a look. There we go. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. When he, when Jesus, came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home... He went, as usual, to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the Scriptures. That's verse 16 of Luke and chapter 4. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him, handed to Jesus, and Jesus unrolled the scroll and found the place in Isaiah where this was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. 
For he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. What a statement. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. And then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. The scripture that you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Let's just pray for a moment, shall we, as we consider the scripture. Father, we thank you so much that you have not left us in the dark searching for answers, but that you, Lord, have revealed yourself to us by sending your beloved Son into this world. We thank you, Jesus, that you have come and that you spoke these words and that you died on the cross for our sins and that you're alive today. Holy Spirit, we ask you to come and open our eyes, open our hearts to believe in the Son of God. Holy Spirit, come to us and give us ears to hear what you're saying, that we might know you and believe you and come into this wonderful change that you're promising to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. This scripture is an announcement that a time of change is coming. That change is possible. That the poor can have good news, that captives can be released, that those who are blind can see, and that the oppressed can be set free. Jesus stands before the watching world. He stands before our lives and he declares, he makes this declaration, the time of the Lord's favor has come. That's the announcement that he brought. A year of jubilee has come. That's the announcement that Jesus made. The time of God's favor has come. That means that change is possible. That you can come out of disfavor and into favor. This is the massive proclamation that Jesus makes. The time of the Lord's favor has now come. As I have come, so God's favor has come, says Jesus. It's an amazing thing. When we think about the presentation of the Christian message in the world, what is the message of Christianity to the world? The reality is it's an incredibly positive message. It's amazing good news. It's, I mean, you have to go through all sorts of intellectual gymnastics to make it sound horrible, harsh, and yucky. This is great news. Jesus arrives on the scene and he says, okay, a time of God's favor has now come. Favor is now coming to you from God. The blessing of God is now coming to you. This is what Jesus is saying. And it's a wonderful thing. And we think sometimes when we think of 
what is the Christian message? And we get all these kind of caricatures. I don't know if it's the media or if it's our own minds or where it comes from. That this is somehow hard and harsh and bitter and grueling and grinding your face into the ground. No. Jesus appears on the scene and he says, the time of God's favor, a season now of the favor of God has now come. This is good news. That's what the word gospel actually means. And I want to make just three, I think, points from this. One, we need God's favor. That's what we need. Above all the other things of needs that there are in our lives, the primary need is the need of God's favor. Because it's not only good news to the materially poor or to those who are literally in prison. Now, it is good news to those who are materially poor and it is good news news to those who are literally in prison. That's why the church, as you look at the spread of the church around the world, there's always been this element of good works, merciful works, works amongst the poor accompanying the church as she grows and moves into different nations of the world. In our own church, just to give you an example, I'm in Cape Town in South Africa, and we have a multiplicity of works amongst the poor, from a drug rehab center for men, which is a residential center for guys who've got addicted and just are falling apart. They can come there. We run a full-on health clinic in our church premises which is registered with the Department of Health. We're, we have a full-time GP, which we pay as a church. We provide free health care. We can prescribe and dispense there. We're also starting an AIDS testing clinic. I think that's now started there. And a, an emergency pregnancy health uh, uh, advice and counseling center all in one. It's a full-on health clinic as an expression of this very thing. This is good news for the poor. Why? Because we discovered that Women with children were waiting all day, all day in government health clinics and not being seen. And then having to go back the next day and all day with sick children or sick themselves. So what's the church response? Well, the government doing something. No, no, we also want to do something now. We've got the answers as well. We run a a, a kind of, I don't know if it's a rehab center, but it's it's kind of a halfway house for ex-prisoners, female prisoners who who come out of prison and really they're just dumped back into society. They've got nowhere, no context, no one wants to know. So we provide a house, a halfway house where they can begin to get their lives together again. I mean, that's just a few of the many, many different things. So listen, it is good news to those who are materially poor, but what Jesus is speaking about as well is not only the material poor, but the reality of the fact that there can be a spiritual poverty as well, a spiritual blindness and a spiritual hunger in you. You can be doing very well on the outside. I mean, you can be doing great on the outside, but on the inside, there's an emptiness without Christ. On the, in, on the outside, it all looks good. The house is there, the cars are there, the holidays are there, the hobbies are there. Everything's set up. But on the inside, there's an emptiness without Christ. And when I first read the Gospel of John, when I was 20 years old, that's the first time I opened really the Bible and read for myself. I had lots of strong opinions about the Bible, you know, as you do, but I had never read it, of course. And then 
a friend of mine became a Christian. Now, I considered him to be normal, so it was a bit alarming that he'd become a Christian. And I, I, this is absolutely true. I wanted to help him. I felt this first wellings up of compassion in me. And I, thought, I, I, I felt sorry for him. And I said to him, listen, you, they took you in. Whatever, you were vulnerable. And you, you came to a kind of point of vulnerability in your life. And you let them in. You let the Christians in. And now look what happened. Give me the books. Give me the books. He gave me the Gospel of John, and he gave me a book uh, by John White, uh, no, uh, I forget the author's name, uh, called uh, Who Does He Think He Is? That was the name, about the claims of Christ. It wasn't John White, I forget who it is. And I began to read, and so I began to read for myself the Gospel of John. Now, before that time, when I met Christians, I would argue with Christians so I would be defending my choices, defending my lifestyle, defending my beliefs. Something different, however, happened when I came to read the Gospel of John for myself, in that I wasn't as defensive as I would normally be if I was interacting with, with a Christian. So it wasn't about an argument. I began reading for myself. And there are many things I could share from that, but I read this. If you continue in my words, you will become my disciple, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you continue in my words, you will become my disciple, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You know, we are not in a position where we are begging people, please become Christians. Oh, the state of the church is so bad. We need... No, no. If you continue in my words, you could be my disciple. That is the highest privilege you could ever hear. That is the highest invitation that there could be, that it could come to you, that you could A, hear the words of Jesus, and B, that you would be allowed to become a disciple of Jesus, that you would actually be invited to join this amazing company of followers of Jesus Christ. That's a privilege. And you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Now, as I'm reading this, I'm not arguing, you see. I'm reading this, and, I'm, and, and in that kind of isolation that, that enabled me to be honest with myself, I realized... Uh, I don't know the truth. Now, I mean, I had truth with a little t, you know, your truth and your truth. And Okay, I don't agree with that, but we take it in, we broaden the circle. Your truth is as good as my truth, his truth is, you know, they call it postmodernism now, but back then it's just what everyone believed. They just put a name on it now. But that's what we believe. But I knew that I didn't have truth with a big T, if you will. I knew I didn't know the truth. And I knew that I wasn't free. I mean... Outwardly, I was free. I, I could travel and go, and I did. I went all over India, and I went to around Europe, and you could travel, and you could do pretty much what you wanted to do. I was in a band. Everyone was in a band in the 80s. My band was called Brutus and the Conspirators. That was the name of my band, and I was Brutus. Oh, yes. And my brother was in a band, actually, called Peter and the Test Tube Babies. Does anyone remember Peter and the Test Tube Babies? You remember, you see, they, then they got onto John Peel's show and everything. My brother was the drummer. Anyway, that is irrelevant. The fact is, I was free outwardly. But when I came to look at this verse, when these words of Jesus... Now, I'm 
reading the Gospel of John carefully. Why? Why was I reading the Gospel of John carefully? Because I was convinced that there were contradictions, mythical elements, legend, fairy tales, the whole thing. Because I said to him, you know, give me whatever literature they gave to you. I'm going to do a proper thorough, I'll sort you out. I will do a proper investigation here and I will then show you where the contradictions are because I absolutely believed they were, the Bible was full of them and, and show you where the mythical, legendary kind of elements are and that will help prize you out of this thing you're in you know, called Christianity, and you can come back into the real world and get on with real life again. That was my goal. That was my objective. So I'm reading it carefully. The thing is, is if you come to the, this wonderful book, I mean, this book, if you come to this book and you start reading it carefully, it's wonderful. I mean, it's wonderful. It was actually, A, it was really interesting. B, it began, I felt as though, more and more as I was reading, it was kind of relevant to me. It was, it was answering questions and there was a voice in this thing that was speaking to me. There were kind of hands that were reaching out and, and, and saying, come on. You know, there was an interaction that began to take place that was more than just reading a good book. It is a good book, but it became more than that. Something additional was taking place. And I do believe that every person, whether they've been very successful in their lives, whether you've had great you know, successes and victories, or whether right now you're facing serious challenges, you, you may well have lost thousands and thousands of pounds already through this last few months. But the reality is whether you've got loads of successes you can point to or whether you've got loads of challenges and difficulties and even failures that you can look at, the fact is something is missing. Something fundamental is not in place. Something's not there. And Jesus says, today I'm bringing you the answer. The favor of God is what's missing. John D. Rockefeller, uh, obviously a very, very wealthy man, once said this, I have made many millions, but they have brought me no happiness. No happiness. Sometimes life's pressures make us realize that our need is bigger than the needs of our circumstances, that our, our souls are actually hungry, that our souls are actually thirsty. And Jesus said, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me and I'm bringing the favor of God to you. I've come to save that which was lost. Lost? I didn't feel lost. I didn't feel lost. But I was lost. I was actually lost. And Jesus said, I've come to save that which was lost. Jean-Paul Sartre, the French uh, novelist, sometimes referred to as, as a philosopher as well, though he described himself primarily as a novelist, he said this, if we say that God does not exist, if that's our position, if we say there is no God, he says we have to follow that thought all the way through to its consequences. And that means that if there's no God, we are abandoned. That's his words. We have been abandoned and that there is a, a kind of undercurrent, a background noise of abandonment in our lives. We've been abandoned. We've been forsaken. There's no one out there looking for us. There's no one out there looking after us. The soul is hungry. You can't throw money 
at issues of the soul and get a result. I remember earlier, it must have been this year, landing at Heathrow, and it was after Britney Spears had gone through one of her, you know, her latest kind of meltdown, and it was a terrible thing to see happening, the way that the paparazzi and that were kind of, uh, you know, focusing in on her. And, and as, I, as I landed at Heathrow, and I was walking along one of those escalator things, and uh, I saw a, 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 someone was reading a, a newspaper on the front page, and there was a full, it looked like a pretty much the full page was of Britney Spears' face, just a close-up. And the picture was kind of alarming because she looked scared, she looked desperate, but she also seemed to be conscious that she was being photographed, much like I am now, so that's enough photographs. But uh, (laughs) am I the only one that can notice that this is happening? So anyway, (laughs) so, um, you know, she was aware. So there was a kind of faint smile on her face at the same time, almost like in recognition. And it was so it was a bizarre picture. And it did make you feel compassion for her. And underneath, they'd written this headline, Into the Abyss. Wow. Now, there is an abyss. There is an abyss. Into the abyss. And my feeling was, obviously, compassion for her, feeling that we need to pray, feeling also that these people need pastors. I mean, they need pastors. Robbie Williams, who is still famous, I understand, in this country. Is that correct? He says he doesn't have an office. He has an adulation top-up center. So what he does is he goes into his office, and he goes online, and if he's feeling a bit low, he goes online and he goes to some of his fan websites, the many different Robbie Williams sites, I guess there are, or maybe he's got his own one. And he looks at the website there and he reads uh, statements that have been sent in by his fans about how fantastic he is. And he says that he gets a kind of pop from that. He gets motivated from that and he kind of comes out of his discouragement through reading that. You can have adoration, you can have significance, you can have adulation. Listen to this. This is what he wrote in his book, Feel. When I'm awake, I don't want to go to sleep. I don't want the hassle of turning the light off, putting my head down, and then all the thoughts. I don't want all those thoughts. Thoughts feed on thoughts, feed on thoughts, feed on thoughts, feed on thoughts. And I'm, I don't want this. I have to knock myself out to go to sleep. You see, you can't just throw money and adoration and significance in your field of business or whatever it is for him, entertainment. It it doesn't solve issues of the soul. Something is missing. Carl Jung, the author and psychologist, said the central neurosis of our time is emptiness. Emptiness. And an African church leader in the 4th century summed it up perfectly. Some of you will know this quote. Augustine said this, recording his prayer, he said this, Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. We are made for God. That's the answer. And until we get right with God, until our souls find their rest 
in God, we're restless. We're hungry. We're thirsty. So you don't just need a good environment, good neighbors, good security, good attitudes, habits, good supply of gadgets and low-level entertainment, iPods, laptops, all the rest of it. We need God's favor over our lives. That's actually what we need. And that desire to reach for something wonderful and awesome and beyond us that's satisfying, that, that hunger for satisfaction in life is a God-given instinct. It's a God-given thing that should lead you to Jesus Christ. And today, you're hearing the answer. It's God's favor that will fulfill your desire. It's God's favor. It's the fullness of the blessing of Jesus Christ that will actually fulfill the desire that you have for more, this hunger for more or something more in life. And Jesus said, the time of the Lord's favor has now come. That's the first thing. We need God's favor. Secondly, we need God's forgiveness. We need God's forgiveness. Now, the Bible is an honest book. It's a it isn't a fairy tale book. It's very frank and upfront with us. And the Bible clearly lays the axe at the roots of the tree. And it says that the problem is sin. That's the problem. The problem is sin. Now, in my kind of investigation of Christianity and as I'm approaching you know, the Christian faith, or as I spoke with or argued with Christians before that time, no one ever said to me, listen, Lex, the, sorry, but the issue isn't you know that you can't logically work out how god would do that and not that and you know the logic of who god is that's not your problem lex your problem is sin no one said that to me and i can understand that because that would be quite difficult to say to someone don't you think you wouldn't really exactly want to go up to someone and and say that but the bible says it the bible says it and, uh, and in those days, there weren't alpha courses and all of that to kind of gradually lead you on. You know, the problem is sin. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Someone asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So living a, a life that pleases God, you could say, you could draw a target there's a big red bullseye in the middle and there's an outer band as well. The, the bullseye is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. The outer rim is love your neighbor as yourself. As we shoot at the target, we miss every time. We, we fall short of the actual standard. We can't make the standard. We don't love God with all our hearts, mind, soul and strength and we don't love our neighbors as ourselves. It just doesn't happen. We've sinned. That's what it means. And Isaiah 1 says, your sins are like scarlet. They are red as crimson. So say I wanted to illustrate that. We've got a lovely uh, white wall just there. Okay? So I said, right, I'm, I'm coming to Winchester. I'm going to talk about this. So let me illustrate this. I buy a big red pot of paint. And uh, me and three other guys prize that thing open, get the lid off. And then we decide we're going to throw the red paint on the wall. So we throw this pot, this large pot of red paint all over that wall. Would you notice it? Would I ever get invited back? <laughs> I mean, it would be difficult to clean as well. But it would be obvious, wouldn't it? It would be absolutely obvious. You'd see it as clear as you can see this red shirt against this white background. 
Your sins are obvious. I mean, they, re- they are obvious to God. Your sins, says God, they're like scarlet. They're as red as crimson. I mean, it's absolutely evident and obvious what your sins are. And Isaiah 59 Verse 2 says, your iniquities, in other words, for sin, your iniquities have separated you from your God so that you can't hear, see Him. Your sins have hidden His face from you so that He won't hear. So that's why there's this disconnect between you and God. The problem, the problem is sin. That's why there's this disconnect. That's why there's this distance. That's why it's not working for you because the problem is sin. That's the problem. Sin, there's a barrier. So what's the answer then? What's the answer? Well, the answer is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the answer to the problem. When we're told in the Bible that when Jesus died on the cross, he was punished in our place for our sins. He willingly, and actually it says in one place, for the joy set before him, he went to the cross, enduring its shame. And when he was hanging on the cross and dying there, he was being punished for our sins. For every wrong thing that you've done, every wrong thing that I've done or said or whatever. He died there on the cross for our sins. So Peter says, he himself bore our sins in his body when he was on the cross. Now note that he himself. This wasn't something that Jesus delegated to somebody else. This wasn't a group effort. This wasn't something that the disciples could also have a share in. He himself bore our sins in his body. Jesus himself went through all the, all the processes approaching that cross and alone. He himself bore our sins in his body when he was on that cross. Paul said, we implore you on Christ's behalf Be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And John says, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. What can remove the scarlet stain of sin? What can remove it? Outwardly you could dress it up, put white white all over you so that it didn't look as though there was any scarlet. What can really wash the soul stain of sin? The, 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 The scarlet stain of sin that remains in the soul. Is there anything powerful enough that could really and truly wash it clean? The Bible says yes. The blood of Jesus Christ, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross secures an absolute forgiveness of your sins. And uh, if you like, an official forgiveness of your sins. You are forgiven when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. When you understand He died for my sin and you believe in Him, you turn away from sin and you turn to Him, something happens. Jesus didn't only die, he rose from the dead. He's alive now amongst us here. And he's still announcing to you, to us, that the time of God's favor is here. The time of God's favor has now come. And when you put your trust in Christ, something happens to you. It's not that you 
uh, just adopt a certain list of beliefs now. I think people can sometimes get confused on that. No, something happens to you. Something happens internally to you when you receive Jesus Christ. Something additional, something powerful, a new life is born in you. Life from God. Paul describes it as becoming a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. You're still you, but you're a new you. The old you has gone and a new you has come into being. That's why it was referred to baptism. That's why baptism is a burial into death and up into new life. A new you comes into being and you begin to learn how to live life all over again. The lifestyle changes because you've come to Jesus Christ. And that, that, that includes forgiveness. When you are forgiven by God, you are able to forgive others. That's one of the most radical effects of the forgiveness of Jesus coming into your life. That all those grudges and all those things that people have done and that one and that one, you can forgive because you've been forgiven. I want to illustrate that from the story of Kim Fook. Uh, we're remembering different wars uh, today. I wonder if you can put this picture up. Uh, the, one of the most difficult wars to remember and we don't do so in this country, obviously, is the Vietnamese War. Let's just wait for them. And uh, there was a, a photo, I'm sure you will remember it, of a girl running away. Is that it? There. From a village that was napalm bombed by uh, American uh, jets. And uh, they issued this command, and the bombs fell. And this became one of the kind of iconic photographs of the 20th century it was a it was a terrible and powerful image and i want to tell this young girl's story what happened after this she's the girl in the picture she she says this i was burned in 1972 when i was nine years old my house was in the middle of the place where four bombs fell I received burns to 65% of my body and I had to have grafts on 35% of my skin surface area, although my face and hands were unscathed. She spent 14 months in hospital. So, well, for a nine-year-old, that must have seemed like an absolute eternity. She spent 14 months in hospital and continued to suffer terrible pain for years after. The Vietnamese government claimed the rights to Kim as a national symbol of war, forcing her to leave school, do interviews, and appear in numerous uh, propaganda movies. I only wanted to escape that picture, she says. I wanted to forget that it ever happened, but they wanted everyone to remember. Deep down in my heart, I really wanted to find the truth and the meaning behind why I suffered, and why I was still alive. And thank God, I got all of that answered when I was 19. Due to her inability to attend school, Kim engrossed herself in the local library. And in the library, she found a book. I wonder which book you think it was. She found a Bible found the Bible 
And she says this, I couldn't stop reading it. A concerned friend took her to a church where she says this, I heard the gospel explained to me for the first time. And the love of God changed my life. I knew then that Jesus died on the cross and paid for my sins. So I asked God, do you forgive me? Kim says, my life was like a cup of coffee, very dark, with hatred, anger, bitterness, sorrow. In 1986, Kim was granted leave to study in Cuba, where she met a fellow Vietnamese student who later became her husband. Still monitored by the Vietnamese government, Kim and her husband seized a sudden opportunity on a flight that was refueling in Canada and defected. So while this plane had to land in Canada, obviously the passengers were they disembarked and her and her husband defected and became Canadian citizens and they still are Canadian citizens today. For the next few years, Kim kept a low profile. Yet in 1996, she was invited to speak at the Veterans Day ceremonies in Washington, D.C. in remembrance of Vietnam. That's a big deal. She stood before the soldiers who had destroyed her country and she expressed forgiveness for what they had done. And this is most of what she said. Dear friends, I'm very happy to be with you today. I thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk and meet with you on this Veterans Day. As you know, I am the little girl who was running to escape from the napalm fire. I've suffered a lot from both physical and emotional pain. Sometimes I thought that I could not live. But God saved me and gave me faith and hope. And even if I could talk face to face with the pilot who dropped the bombs, I would tell him we cannot change history, but we should try to do good things for the present and for the future to promote peace. And she received, obviously, a rapturous round of applause. Well, unknown to her, the officer who had ordered the airstrike on her village was actually in the crowd. This is a true, absolutely true story. When he had seen the photo in the newspaper after the bombing, he collapsed to his knees. And the image had haunted him ever since. After Kim spoke, he wrote down on a piece of paper, Kim, I am the man, I'm that man, and gave it to a policeman to deliver to her. Permission was gained from Kim, and a little later they met. His name is John Plummer. John Plummer says this. This is his testimony from that day. She held out her arms to me and embraced me. All I could say is, I'm sorry. I'm just so sorry. Over and over again. And at the same time, she was saying, it's all right. I forgive you. I forgive. They met again later the same day. And Kim reaffirmed her forgiveness once more. And they've since become good friends, communicating by phone. 
Now, says Kim, that is true reconciliation. Now, what was the key? What was the key to that? This is the key. I heard the gospel explained to me for the first time. The love of God changed my life. And I knew that Jesus died on the cross and paid for my sins. What is it about the cross that stands over our world that can produce such powerful change in people's lives? The cross of Christ has the power to forgive your sins and really change you. The key to this change is the cross of Jesus Christ. And acknowledging and coming to God and saying, God, I I need to be forgiven. I mean, you might be holding unforgiveness towards different ones. I doubt it if it's on the same scale. But when the forgiveness of God comes to you through Jesus Christ, you can also forgive others. Change happens internally. So, and that's relevant to you. This is absolutely relevant. It's relevant in your family. It's relevant in your workplace. It's relevant in the history of your relationships with neighbors or whoever. It's relevant where I live in South Africa. This is the most relevant topic you could be hearing about. The cross of Jesus Christ to really bring about change. We need God's favor. We need God's forgiveness. Lastly, and I've kind of hinted at this already, obviously, God's favor and forgiveness are available today through Jesus Christ. So I'm saying, based on Jesus' words that we've read here in Luke 4, that you can today, you can know the favor of God in your life through Him. I'm making that statement, that you can know the favor of God. Because Jesus said, today, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, it was an Old Testament scripture. It was from the book of Isaiah, as we read. And the theme broadly of the Old Testament, of all the prophecies and all the promises, is that there is a coming Savior, a coming Christ, a coming Messiah who will appear and who will deliver. He will have the authority and the power to reconcile the world to God. He's bringing God's kingdom rule to the earth and he'll reconcile people back to God. That's the theme of the Old Testament. And I want to end... Uh, the session this morning by asking a few questions that I hope will encourage us to trust in Christ for ourselves today. First question is this. Were the Old Testament scriptures fulfilled in Jesus? Because Jesus made this claim. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Well, were the Old Testament scriptures fulfilled? And here are a few. Some that have been, some that are being as we speak. Adam was told that Christ would crush Satan. Moses was told that the Christ would be the great deliverer. He, (coughs) excuse me, he would have to be an Israelite. He would have to be Jewish. The Messiah is going to be Jewish, says Moses, and he would have great power. Isaiah was told he'd be born of a virgin. That's a difficult one to kind of put into place once you've been born, as is the next one. Micah was told he'd be born in Bethlehem. In Judea, Asaph was told that he'd teach the people using parables. So you see, you could say, well, he fulfilled some of them. But being born in Bethlehem, you can't manage that. You can't manage that. 
Isaiah was told he'd perform signs and wonders and healing. David was told he'd be betrayed by a friend. Zechariah said he'd be sold for 30 pieces of silver exactly and that he'd be beaten and that he'd be abandoned by those who, was with it, those who were with him. David was told that they would pierce his hands and his feet. Isaiah said that his suffering was a sacrifice for our sins and that he would pray for those who were putting him to death and that he would die with known transgressors. David said that he would rise again from the dead, that his body would not see decay, that he would ascend to heaven, that he would sit at the right hand of God. And Daniel said that he would return again in glory for his own people, that his kingdom would never end. Other kingdoms would rise and fall, would come and go, but this kingdom would outlast them all. Those are just a few of the Old Testament prophecies. Isaiah again says this, He will be called Wonderful, Wonderful, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end. And that's just a few. That's just a few of the Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled in Christ. So, it was a huge day for Jesus to step up and say, today it's fulfilled. In your hearing right now, I've come. I've come. The favor of the Lord has come because I've come, says Jesus. Secondly, <clears throat> did God's favor break out through Jesus? That was the claim. Well, did it happen? Did it actually happen? Well, if you read through the gospel accounts, you'll find again <clears throat> and again healings, miracles, Families touched parents, bringing their children that he might bless them. Crowds gathering to hear the teaching. Christianity has always empowered people through teaching because Jesus came teaching and healing. That's why wherever we've been, right through the centuries, we've been setting up educational institutions, universities on the one side, and hospitals and care for those who are sick and suffering on the other side because of Jesus, because Jesus came teaching and he came healing. And people were empowered as he taught them. They, they were lifted up. It wasn't just a case of saying, <coughs> you just need to obey. That's not Christianity. Christianity comes teaching. God himself says, let's reason together. <coughs> Amazingly, he actually appeals to our reason and teaches. So the favor of God did break out. Forgiveness of sins was sought and found by those who came to Christ. If you read through the book of Acts and later church history again and again and again, we read of individuals and families that have found peace with God through Jesus Christ. Whole towns, even nations, cultures have been shaped and changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christianity is by far the world's leading religion. It's growing faster than any other faith on the planet. And in our lives even now, back down into this room now, there are many who could say, yes, the favor of God broke out into my life when I put my trust in Jesus Christ. I put my trust in Christ 24 years ago. And I want to tell you, I'm not lying. I don't need to do this. I could be doing other things. 24 years, the favor of God has come into my life. I haven't always been as good as I wanted to be. I've let him down. He's never let me down. Never let me down. What about you? Anyone here, 34 years you've been following Jesus? Put your hand up. If you've been, if you've, you, you know, you've been born again, loving Jesus, 34 years, longer, 44 years, keep your hand up. 
44 years, 54 years. Keep your hand up. Wow. Six, oh, did I get to 54? 64 years? John, that's not funny. 54 years you've been following Jesus. Listen, there are centuries. We've just combined centuries of individual experience of Jesus Christ. And our united testimony to you is He is good and He is trustworthy. Would you say that, sir? Absolutely, he says. 54 years I've been following Jesus Christ. Absolutely, He is faithful. He's trustworthy. I don't know what we can do to gather up all our years and and present them to you and say, this is true. This is true. We want to roll up all our years of experience together from the youngest Christian to the oldest amongst us and say, Jesus Christ is trustworthy. He's worthy of your trust. You can put your faith in Him. He is a good shepherd. You need a good shepherd. You need someone to be responsible for your life. Someone looking after you. Someone standing forward as the leader and saying, I'll be your shepherd. That's Jesus Christ. Without Him, it's just you or the the latest thing. What is it? But Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the good I'm the leader. I'm the leader. You follow me now. You follow me. Did God's favor break out? Yes. Quickly. Thirdly, what was the testimony of others about Jesus? Pilate brought him out and said, behold, the man. John the Apostle says Jesus was God and he was with God and he was God. John the Baptist says the one who comes from above is above all. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Philip says we found the one that Moses wrote about in the law and about whom all the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. The Samaritan people said we've heard for ourselves and we know this man really is the Savior of the world. The writer of the book of Hebrews says he is the image of the invisible God. Thomas, who's always criticized for being doubting Thomas. Thomas makes one of the clearest statements of faith in the whole Bible. When, when Jesus appeared to the disciples after the resurrection, Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Remember, he'd said before, I, I won't believe it. I'm not believing it. He, he, he decided not to believe. And Jesus appeared and he said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus didn't say to him, Thomas, you drive me crazy. You just, you go from one extreme to the other. One minute you're not believing in me, now you're calling me God. Look, I'm not God, I'm the Son of God. Get a grip. He didn't say that, did he? When Thomas said, my Lord and my God, what did Jesus say? Jesus said, because you have seen, you have believed. Blessed are those who believe, even though they haven't seen. He commends Thomas. Thomas got it right. God the Father, at Jesus' baptism even, breaks through and says, this is my beloved Son. In Him I am well pleased. God himself commends Jesus to you that you might believe in him, that you might adore him, that you might follow him. Last one, what did Jesus say about himself? And what does he therefore say to us? Jesus said, I and the Father are one. I have come down from heaven. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. Talking about that spiritual hunger we were talking about before. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He's crossed over from death to life. I've come into the world as a light that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. I am the way and the truth and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is God's given solution to the human race and he's available to everyone. Whatever their background, whatever century they're born in, whatever culture they're from, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. So turn then from the old ways and turn to Christ today. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. And the verse I started with, if you hold to my teaching, if you continue in my words, you can be my disciple and you can know the truth and the truth will set you free. Hallelujah. Let's stand together and we're going to pray.